You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So number one, I agree with Thomas Jefferson. He said there should be no religious test for public office. I think it's very important that we respect people of all faiths and people without faith. It needs to be a widely diverse community. We need to be unified in our diversity, tolerant of our disagreements. And it would be nice if we could simply say we disagree without being disagreeable. I think that's the advocate's way. What do you think? Two points of personal privilege. The Buddha said life is suffering. And until I hear libertarians discuss religion, I never quite understood what he meant. <laughs> Let's, uh, l- let us respect and love people of all different back- backgrounds, even when we think they're wrong. Uh, one point that I, I could not resist, uh, Walter Block, I was surprised, did not make it. There's an old quote that says, there are no atheists in foxholes. So I concluded, if we want fewer foxholes, we need more atheists. <laughs> Just a concept for those of you in the logician background. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great honor and great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, a good friend, a fellow traveler, and someone that uh, I am quite pleased to uh, acknowledge as a teacher, as a student, as a friend, and someone I've worked with for many years off and on, somebody who I view as larger than life, my friend Marshall Fritz. <laughs> All right. Another, down to 276. So people say, what are you up to? And I say 276, but uh, we're still trying to get it down to. So some of you remember of me at 308, too much weight. I'm wearing my Separation of School and State Alliance hat to remind you that uh, I am now speaking uh, in a, in a, with a different uh, voice uh, for a different organization than I was speaking a few minutes ago. So I want you to bury the animus for an hour, uh, listen to the uh, Separation of School and State, and uh, then we can, uh, can take the hat off and we can go back to it. In fact, I think I'll take the hat off right now so that the people on the TV audience won't be saying, doesn't he look silly? And uh, they did look silly. The title of this presentation is How I Sold Justice Clarence Thomas on the Separation of School and State. Uh, subtitle is uh, The SEP School Victory Might Be Closer Than We Think. Uh, speaking of the Acton Institute, which is getting praise, and I uh, praise as well, 
I got to be at the banquet uh, in, in uh, May of 1994 and was there. I like to say uh, Justice Thomas and I had dinner together along with 710 other people. You know, and I was properly seated at table 23, uh, the comps for the, uh, you know, semi-VIPs. And uh, Justice Thomas was uh, in the salad course up there at the big head table, and nobody else was bothering him, and I took that as, you know, a, a moment. So I went up to him and said, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, may I please uh, take a handshake back to Fresno? Uh, my name is uh, Marshall Fritz, and I'm with the separation of school and state. He shook my hand, and then he was sitting in this sort of a chair that you can lean back in safely. And he leaned back and said, separation of school and state? And I said, yes, sir. One and a half seconds. Ha! I like that! That's right. Now, why do I tell the story? Well, I finally understand what my high school physics teacher was talking about with that boulder that was up on the top of the hill or cliff full of potential energy. Anybody remember that physics, physics kind of potential energy stuff? I mean, if that wasn't bad enough, a little later we got imaginary numbers. <laughs> the square root of minus one. That's when I decamped and became a business major, right? I, mean, I think I'd prefer poetry or music to imaginary numbers. The point of the boulder is the boulder is sitting there waiting for a butterfly to land on top, and then boom, 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 down the hill. It's that close sometimes. And Clarence Thomas, it was clear, had never thought of the separation of school and state. But in one and a half seconds, that big analog mind went through and he was there. And that happens frequently. My point is that there are different ways that different people need to come to this idea. But the good news is that our polling shows that 27% of the American people are already favorable to the end of compulsory attendance and the end of taxation to support kindergarten through 12th grade schools. Now we polled it twice, 94 and 98, and got the same number, statistically insignificant, between 26% one year and 27 the next four years later. But the second year we asked another question of the people who gave a negative response. We said, oh, by the way, if you were, and this is a polling company, they wrote the questions. I didn't get to, you know, or want to tweak the answers one way or the other. I wanted to get some, you know, true facts. Um, that's right. <laughs> the, uh, and there must be a good reason. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Or one of the devils is playing with the lights is more likely. Annie, is your brother here? <laughs> we know where these things come from. It's called payback, payback, Dad, payback. Uh, okay, what do you say when you've lost your train of thought in your public speaking? Yeah, you ask people, what was I talking about? And they tell you, and you go on. Bowling, and the second question, thank you, there's a <laughs> 
Thank God for atheists that are paying attention. (laughs) People that didn't hear the earlier presentation will wonder why was that funny, but in any event. The second question was, what about a hypothetical situation where you were comfortable that there were going to be enough private scholarships to afford to, to pay for uh, all the poor and disadvantaged children could get to go to a better school than they're going to today? Would that affect your decision? 30% of the original corpus, some 43 or 47% of the subset of 700. But another 30% said, oh, well, that changes things entirely. Then I'd be for it. Now, it's not quite legitimate. I need to give a little caveat here. It's not quite legitimate to add the 27 and the 30 and get 57. It's something short of that. Uh, but it very well may be in the neighborhood of 50% of what the U.S. population is like the boulder sitting at the top of the hill. And for a society that's spending right now $300 billion on government schooling, to have a $300 billion tax cut, Niskanen's law to be spending then 100 to 125 billion educating the top two thirds of the population who will be able to afford it with the um, uh, tax cut. People say, oh, it won't be a tax cut. I said, when Americans discovered they weren't fighting World War II anymore, in 1946 they had a big tax cut. Any society that's going to turn its back on the original uh, welfare scheme, government schooling, the grandmother of the entire welfare entitlement mentality, any society that's capable of turning its back on grandmother mammary of OPM, out of their people's money, is a society that is also going to say, by the way, hint, hint, we want our tax cut. So that society is going to need to raise about $25 billion, with a B, in scholarships to allow the 15 million poorest to go to school. And $25 billion is a small part of the $175 billion to $200 billion change. Yeah, we'll spend most of it on delivered pizza and ski vacations and that sort of a thing. But it's very predictable, prudently predictable, that Americans will come up with the $25 billion necessary to make sure that the poor children go to school. We've got to make that, get that message across, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Victory might be closer than we think. Belloc said that the leaders of an ideological movement have no concept of how close they are. In fact, the night before victory, they're complaining that they might as well give up. It's all is lost. The muskrat, as he burrows through the uh, dike, doesn't know that he's a foot away, six inches away, three inches away. He makes that breakthrough, and he's in for a surfing event. (laughs) Unlike anything you've ever seen at Makaha. And he's in for a hell of a ride when he makes the breakthrough. Ed Crane says, many of us know Ed Crane, the uh, president and founder of the Cato Institute, uh, the effort to separate government from schooling in America is no pipe dream. The collapse of communism in the East occurred much more rapidly than the expert observers believed possible. Indeed, most of them assumed that communism would never collapse. The same holds true for the public school monopoly. We are on the verge of a public uprising that will swamp the proponents of government schooling. And by the way, they know it. The late Al Shanker said, if we don't change course, public school will continue on its course to destruction. They know it. Look at all the predictions that didn't come true. Ken Olson, Digital Equipment, 1976, regarding home computers. Who wants a computer at home? 
Harry Warner, 1928. Who wants to hear talking actors? Oh, what a stupid idea. The fall of Marcos. The day of the election, we read it here. How many of us thought Marcos was going to fall in a week or two? In fact, how many of us in this room in October of 1989 were predicting the fall of the Berlin Wall in, oh, four to six weeks? May I see a show of hands? That's right. And I can't remember his name, but the general who belatedly was told of the Manhattan Project said it'll never blow up. Somebody here will give me the name at break. It'll never blow up, blow up and I speak as an expert on explosives. One paradigm short of a load. <laughs> now, how are we going to get this to happen? What is our strategy for victory for the separation of school and state? And by the way, this is important to libertarians, because if you think about it, state schools are the reproductive organs of statism. It's where the children in any uh, society are, go right ahead, he wants to applaud, he thinks that's an applause line, I agree, start it. All right. Ta-da! <laughs> And speaking as a person who's gotten awfully close to the scalpel, such emasculation of the state is exactly what we libertarians want. This is <laughs> where they teach our children to say Sigheil to whoever is the current Obergruppenführer and leader of the country. So we have a caterpillar to butterfly strategy. What does that mean? Well, think about a caterpillar. He's a woolly, little willy worm of some sort. And one day he decides that it's time to become a butterfly. So he wraps himself in a cocoon. And then I'm sure David's going to technically correct, Nolan's going to technically correct me after this, but <clears throat> pretend this is true, all right? Uh, and every cell in the caterpillar says to itself, I got to work on becoming a better butterfly cell and stop being a worm cell. And it gets to work to do that, to make that metamorphosis. And you look at the thing, and the little chrysalis doesn't look very impressive, little brown thing, you know, or whatever it is. And yet there's a butterfly forming inside. You can't tell how far it long is. You're 10 years old. You want to tear it open and see the butterfly, and you don't know. Then one day, out flies, whoosh, the butterfly. And I believe that's the way. It's not the only way. But a sociological change of the magnitude of the separation of school and state could happen. But it's the way I believe that it will happen. That we will gradually move from six million. Slide, please. Sons-in-law <laughs> sons are great things to have around. It's just, uh, it's just neat. Do we have, is this cordless? Now, I have the gift of clumsiness. Can I get over there? What we're showing here is an oval uh, Venn diagram that represents the 52 million uh, school children that, uh, in fact, it says families, it should say school children, um, but the 52 million school children who are kindergarten through 12th grade age. This strong line here represents the, the um, 
six million or six and a half million who are currently either private schooled or homeschooled. And private schooling could be religious or not religious or Montessori or Waldorf or, you know, what have you. Uh, Snoodlerian. Uh, that's not the point. These are um, six and a half million families approximately are in what we might call NGS, non-government schooling, or fully independent families that are paying for their own children's education. Uh, or in some cases, grandma's helping them out or even a, um, a scholarship fund of some sort. Our strategy is simple and gradual and not very uh, exciting in a sense. Uh, Bettina Bien Graves uh, says that we uh, liberty lovers are at a disadvantage with the central planner types. The central planner types uh, always have a plan. Oh, there's a crisis and, and here's my plan to solve the crisis. So they think they have a, a plan to show everybody. And we don't have a plan. We say, well, if you let people alone, they'll work things out on their own. So they're always at a rhetorical or polemic advantage over us. But we have an advantage on them, too. Their plans never work. <laughs> you know, Horace Mann said, we have public schools, we'll empty the jails. Because people, once they know so much will all be good. It's like his opinion, PhDs never make mistakes. And uh, so anyway, these predictions always go. Now our strategy is to find the people, yes, I brought the special pen with me to Fresno, I mean to uh, Atlanta. Uh, no, I didn't bring it with me. Anybody got a, uh, one of those marker pens that works on these uh, slippery papers, happen to be handy in their pocket? Ta da one, two, three. Okay. See these imaginary dots right here? <laughs> Hear those dots? Ta -da. This, will, this might work. It will wash off. See these red imaginary dots? <laughs> right here? Those are people, and this is a fun word for libertarians. These are the people at the margin. And they're thinking about private schooling. On April the 21st this year, 24 hours after the, and the way I think we should always express it, the Columbine public high school tragedy. See, if that thing had been a Lutheran, there have been 13 mass murders, multiple murders, two or more, done by students at school. All 13 have been at public schools. If all 13 had been at Lutheran schools, do you think we would hear about the Lutheran school crisis? So I haven't worked out the statistics, but it seems to me that they're starting to stretch the uh, randomness here across schooling, and I'm beginning to smell a pattern. So I think we should always say in our words the uh, Columbine Public High School tragedy. But the day after the Columbine Public High School tragedy, how many millions of Americans were saying, you know, I wonder if we should consider homeschooling or sending our kids down to All Saints Lutheran. Or there's people nodding back in the air, I'm us, as <laughs> we did. Uh, I mean, I know the phones jumped off the hooks at various um, uh, homeschooling hotlines around the country. Uh, so there's, um, uh, those are the people at the margin. And our job in the Separation of School and State Alliance, 
is to an organization that is a project, by the way, of the, we've been in the incubator of the Advocates for Self-Government. So we're actually a project of the Advocates for Self-Government, and we are about to spin off and become our own corporation and get our own 501c3 and, uh, and all of that good stuff. So we've enjoyed this incubator status. But the, our job is to get people at the margin to think about how their lives could be improved and their families could be improved by moving their children out of the schools. Our job is to move that number to 7 million, 8 million, 9 million, 10, 11, 12, 13. We don't know. 14, 15 million. We don't know. People that actually think strategically um, in, in bigger thoughts than I do tell me that if we move from about 6 million to 16 million or so, another 10 million, that if we take... Uh, the government schools down to about 70% of the population and have 30 to 33% of the population out, that we will reach that moment where we crack the rest of the egg, that they throw in the towel, that every preacher and teacher in America stands up and say, everybody should have a private education. This is absolutely nonsensical that we're keeping people in these uh, torture chambers uh, by that point known as government schools. So that is our caterpillar to butterfly strategy is to keep moving at the margin. Get, and there's two parts here, by the way. We need to educate them with two messages. One, rescue your children from government schools. It particularly distresses me. I do not have a statistic on this, but it particularly distresses me that I believe libertarians public school their children at about the same percentage as the rest of the population. Now, that is just an observation guess. I do not have a number on that. And the libertarians who do know better don't particularly do better. Uh, they, they, they complain more. But if you look in the uh, yellow pages at the private schools, uh, you'll see that the vast majority of them are, are religiously based because people are afraid not only of the academics, their kids getting clobbered, not only safety physically getting clobbered, uh, not only morally uh, getting clobbered, uh, but spiritually getting clobbered too. And they have more reasons, uh, the Christians have more, and, and for that matter, um, Muslims and Sikhs uh, have, and, and religious Jews have more reason than uh, mere libertarians for, getting, for rescuing and saving their children. But rescuing the children from government schools is not enough, because as a dog returns to his vomit, if these people do not understand, boy, they, they giggle when you quote scripture. Huh. I'll have to get more biblical. If people are removing their children from the government schools because they're dangerous at the moment, and because they're not very good at the moment, because the test scores have fallen finally behind Cyprus and Jordan, we're no longer beating them in fourth grade reading scores. And where are we on the poetry, uh, you know, world, world-class poetry standards? Are we, you know, are we falling behind Belgium in poetry? I have often wondered. So, we've got to have two messages. One, rescue your children from the government schools. They are at risk. Two, rescue your mind from the idea that government schools were ever good. One of the fun things I get to tell my fellow Christians is... Christians made the wrong mistake 150 years ago when they took the bait from the Unitarians and Deists and started the government schools, handed over their children and handed over their schools to the government. It's an interesting story if you want to read the 1830s and 1840s. 
So we need to rescue their thinking from the whole concept of government schooling so they do not return to that mistake. And we need to do it in such a way that it is firm the way the abolitionists have got us to the point, you know, how many people are there in America who want to return to chattel slavery? Now, corporate slavery with the government? Sure, that's another thing. But chattel slavery, one-on-one ownership, we've somehow got that out of our system, at least for a while. And that's the sort of kind of consensus that we need with the government schools. What a terrible mistake it was to have ever had the things. Not that they were good until the 30s or the 50s, and now they've turned out badly. And there's four groups we need to educate. Parents, patrons, teachers, preachers. Parents are the main group. They need to hear this. Secondly is patrons, people who will donate money, the the philanthropist in us all. Can you give $10 a month to a private scholarship foundation? Can you give $10,000 a month? I mean, we all have different number of zeros in our bank accounts. But get involved and help somebody find the, the, um, uh, the donor within and, um, um, and contribute to a private scholarship foundation. Teachers. One of our uh, um, work is with public school teachers in particular. Because it's very powerful when uh, the teacher apostatizes from her uh, slavish belief in government schools. So we have school Sakharovs, about 200 of them now. And these are public school teachers, former public school teachers, and uh, school board members who have said, I signed the proclamation, I believe publicly, a state publicly, that I believe in the full separation of school and state. And preachers, we need the ministers. There's even a, uh, another organization that started up called Exodus 2000, another one called Exodus Project, another one called Rescue 2010, that are in the Christian motif and are specializing in getting Christian preachers to get the big aha. Uh, we're making a mistake here, sending Christian children into these schools. We need to start our own school. So those are the four uh, target areas. I should have defined earlier, but I will, particularly for the tape audience. What do we mean by the separation of school and state? We we mean ending the five controls, five leashes that uh, government has on schooling. By government, we mean local, state, federal, and if there is any international, government. So this is not trying to get things back to the local level. When people say that, I said, that's like you say you're against slavery, but all you really want to do is have have them on small plantations. (laughs) You know, the small plantation theory, they're nicer to the slaves. And small districts are nicer uh, to their uh, inmates than are the large districts. I'm reminded of of, um, Bill Bennett when he went to Chicago and spoke to several thousand teachers and administrators and said, this is the worst school district in America. And one brave soul sitting about where you are stood up and said, sir, I disagree. Detroit is worse. (laughs) We have some key selling points and concepts that we need to get across to people. The first one, I want to thank my friend George H. Smith, the author of Uh, Atheism, the Case Against God, and some other books, um, who gave this idea to me via tape about 15 years ago. Uh, But it is a crucial idea. The schools are not broken. 
They are doing what they set out to do. They cannot be fixed because they are not even broken. They are designed to strengthen the politically uh, strong by undermining the politically weak. When you take the children of the politically weak and you put them in your school, when you make Christian, Jewish, and Muslim children wear a little emblem of Lenin, because they're all members of the Order of the October Child from 1921 to 1991 in the Soviet Union as the atheists found ways to undermine the religious people. The religious people, mothers in particular, cannot believe that they are hurting their children. Somehow the mom is wired to believe she is not hurting her child. And therefore, if they are undermining my faith in my children, it can't be all bad because I'm somehow not having the courage to leave, to stand up to them, to die for my beliefs. So the resolution to the cognitive dissonance, the cheap resolution, the easy way out, is to decide that it's not really all that bad or they're not going to be successful. If we have a good little Bible program on Wednesday night, we can save our children and send them to the atheist schools. So the schools, we've got to convince people, are not broken. They are doing what they set out to do. The two purposes of government schooling, any country, any, plant, any uh, continent, any century, the two reasons are, one, to undermine the politically, to undermine the families, just to weaken the families and strengthen the government, and two, to prepare the boys to go off to war and the girls to applaud them for it. Those are the two purposes. Everything that you see about the poor and the reading and, and holding America together and, and, uh, and, 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 and assimilating the immigrant is all bovine fecal matter. <laughs> when I get hit with that question, when I get hit with that question, I say, well, wait a minute, I don't know who you're insulting that we needed the schools to assimilate the immigrant. Are you a, 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 uh, insulting the Lutheran? And the Dutch Reform and the Catholic who put his child in a private school? Are you saying they're not Americans? Are you saying they didn't go off to World War II or one or, or Korea or Vietnam? Are you saying that Catholics aren't very good Americans? Is that who you're insulting? Or are you insulting the Jews and the Protestants who typically use government schools? Are you saying there's something defective about their theology and they couldn't do it on their own? They needed government assistance to become real Americans? Just who are you insulting? You know, it is, I wish I weren't here, time out. It's, of course, I lose points on the niceness thing, so. <laughs> Schooling is not education in America today. compartmentalism that they brag about, that you can keep God in the home compartment and the church, uh, temple, synagogue, uh, masjid department, and that here in the school department, compartment, we're just going to teach, you know, algebra and poetry and, and reading and writing. We're going to... That injunction against teachers from engaging their students in the serious questions of life, why am I here? Is my purpose seven or eight decades? 
of pleasure, of getting my secretions to do good things rather than uncomfortable things? You know, is it is a good life a secreted life? Is that my purpose, to be happy? What is What is happiness? When you say to teachers and students, please do not engage in these conversations, you have lopped off the thinking, the heavy-duty thinking area of the human being, and you have downsized education to training. You're training readers. You're training, and in fact, because of now, the last 60 years, driven by the testing and the publishing of the test scores, it is so reductionist that we now define education as the training of test-taking robots. And we want our robotinos... Oh, that's... Spanish for robots. We want our test-taking robots to be better than the test-taking robots of Korea, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, etc. And the children, look at the way you read books in high school and college. You used a marker pen, you marked it all up, you memorized the whole thing like this, and spent Thursday night and Friday morning doing that. You went in there and took the midterm, you got through it. (sighs) That's my five-minute warning. And then you spent the weekend forgetting about it. And most of our population resents thinking. Most of our population thinks the answers are in the back of the book. The experts know it. Let the experts take care of it. A government study shows We do not have, you should please avoid the phrase, public education. We have government schooling. And the compartmentalism has destroyed education and because education requires teachers and students to be engaging in the real questions of life. And I'm not saying they should all be, um, you know, religious schools or this, but they should be able to engage in discussions over what is the purpose of life. Freedom is necessary for morality. If a person is going to be what we call moral, he needs to be free to make that decision himself. Parents must choose whether and how to what degree they are going to furnish education for their children. It turns out that sacrifice builds character. And by sacrifice, I mean the legitimate dictionary historical use of the word and the definition of it. I do not mean an idiosyncratic, erroneous, deceitful, and deceiving definition of sacrifice. I mean the original, actual definition of sacrifice, as used in baseball, as used in religion. Sacrifice is the giving up of something you want for something you want more. Up until 1894, when you hit a sacrifice fly, it counted against your score. One of the things you want is your batting average to be up, right? And when you hit a sacrifice fly and advanced a runner, your batting average went down because until 1894 in baseball, it counted and it was called a sacrifice fly. Could have been called an investment fly. I'm investing a small decrease in my, um, in my, um, 
batting average for something I want more, an increase in the probability that my team's going to win and that my coach is going to keep me employed because he just told me to hit a sacrifice fly. <laughs> it is in my best interest to do that. Sacrifice. Now, there are people who have come up with peculiar, as I say, idiosyncratic definitions of sacrifice that are just false. Sacrifice builds character. And our parents need to sacrifice for their children. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the vouchers, I think. I'll bet that's it. I'll bet he thinks that if you socialize the decision on how much to spend, and you, I love Murray's word, mulched it out of the people, that the parents are not sacrificing. I bet they get into a food stamp mentality, and they take Billy down to the school, drop him off, flick that voucher on him and say, here, educate Billy. I bet, I don't have to, I bet they don't have to make any decisions. Because the government says the uh, voucher amount is 4000 well, that's the amount we should be spending on schooling. How many people are going to invent a $2,000-a-year school if the voucher amount is 4000 Nobody. <laughs> he said, I don't want innovation and reduced cost in, in schooling. I want to make sure it stays expensive, and we'll have the government pay for it that way. Sacrifice, Malachi 4.6, turns the hearts of the fathers towards their children. It rebuilds the family. It can rebuild the culture. Secularist or not. And I was once accused at the end of a presentation during the critique session of showing an appalling lack of atheism. <laughs> um, but returning... The responsibility for education to parents, I believe, is the key factor in reversing, turning around the fall of this culture. I believe our culture is falling like a streamlined brick into the latrine. And every other proposal I've heard is someone who wants to attach a parachute to the brick. Slow it down a little. This is, to the best of my knowledge, the only program that has the potential where there is a vision of reversing that fall before we are fully engulfed in the sewer. And that is the separation of school and state. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your kind attention. Yes, sir. State your uh, name, uh, location, and um, uh, uh, MasterCard number. Dana Winhorse, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There is one other thing that would reverse the fall, and that is to eliminate the welfare state so that we can reestablish the need for community and family. Uh, maybe between those two things, 
um, uh, those are most responsible for uh, the the brick falling into the sewer. But uh, you've, you, uh, separation of school and state won't do it. You've got to eliminate the welfare state also. You have to reestablish the need for community and family. That is what's destroying our culture. I I fully agree with the man. Fully agree with him. And. Um, People think it's a big job to separate school and state and, and tell me I've chewed off quite a bit there. But the funny thing is, with a Venturi effect, we pull the rest of us with it, rest of them with us. I predict a $300 billion tax cut because of the fall of the original welfare programs. See, if public schooling is welfare, public, public housing is welfare, public schooling is welfare. If uh, free lunch at noon is welfare, a free algebra lesson at 10 a.m. is welfare. Uh, anybody here to go to public school? Will you stand up, please? We stand up if you went to public school? You're looking at grown-up welfare brats. <laughs> uh, your parents were welfare kings and queens, fifth and sixth generation. <laughs> now, you might not use food welfare or, you know, might have even looked down at your nose at people who use shelter welfare, but you used edu-welfare. So the man is absolutely correct. But a society that is going to reject the original welfare program is going to reject all the rest of them. The real tax cut is probably going to be in the neighborhood of $900 billion, including the $71 billion of welfare to corporations. Yes, sir. Marty England, uh, Rogersville, Tennessee. I've wondered when would be the best place to bring up the remark that I'm just beginning to make, and I feel that here would be the place. There are, right now in this country, and this is to anyone who's responsible, a decision maker for uh, separation of school and state mailing lists and any other libertarian mailing list. There are right now some one million plus people getting ready to go to church or who are in church this morning at, as we speak who are politically homeless. They do not believe and, and will make the quick transition. Talk about Adventists? Yes. That will make that quick transition that you mentioned uh, that Clarence Thomas made uh, separation of church and state separation of uh, school and state. Uh, I was being raised a... Now, let, me, let me cut you off and, and because we have some other people and you're, and you're going to be taking up their time and they're not going to ask you a question. So they're going to have the tall man be the last person. And uh, could you bring that to a question or would you like me just to address what you've said so far? I would just like to say these... I was a libertarian 20 years before I even knew what they were. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I feel these are people who... A heterosexual about 10 years before I found out what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> but these are this is a training ground for potential libertarians who if they were made welcome into this and there are many uh, many school teachers who would respond to your message uh adventist school teachers who would respond to what you have to say immediately uh let's uh, hope that he starts the uh, adventist for liberty uh, adventist for separation of school and state i expect there to be I expect there to be, I fully agree with you, and I expect there to be uh, probably 200 or more organizations, independent organizations that start up that focus on one particular market group or one particular locale or one particular, you know, Utahns for the end of, uh, for the repeal of compulsory attendance laws. There'll be lots of this, and I'd be glad to help you and give you a list of every SDA member who has signed the proclamation. So thank you. As we have with... Uh, SDA, as we have with LDS. Yes, uh, lady. Yes, I, my name is April Bishop, and I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. And I, 
Sorry. I've always planned on homeschooling because I thought it would be fun, mostly. And what really opened my eyes was your tapes of uh, saying that religion and education are inseparable, the two sides of the same coin. And I think that public schools are just meant to create an obedient and uncomplaining uh, taxpayers. Bingo! Maringo! <laughs> Bingo, Maringo! She nailed it. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Paul Jennison. I'm from the local Atlanta area parties, um, DeKalb County. I've been asked at, um, uh, by friends and at the LPH booths a question that I, I, maybe you can respond to. If education is privatized and if attendance is no longer mandatory, how will we ensure that all children have an opportunity to get an education with particular emphasis on the poor and um, maybe even some of the disobedient students. Okay, what you need to do, first of all, before I even address the question, is go back to libertarianism in one lesson and read the five fallacies and see how that you just use the utopian fallacy. And let me rephrase it so that it's very apparent. Can you, Mr. Fritz, guarantee that every child in America will go to a better school than they're going to today? Can you guarantee that? Can you guarantee utopia? is the essential message of the way the question was phrased. And, of course, we then say, well, no, I can't. Somebody might slip through the cracks, is kind of the instinctive reaction to it. But what we need to do when we're asked the question that is, has an embedded utopian fallacy is say something on the order, there is no big button over here with a U that we get to press. Utopia is not one of the possibilities. Our choices are between continuing down the road to destruction that we're on now and, and having the government become the big enabler of weak parenting. We know what happens if we continue down that road. Or moving to a different road, the original American idea of parental responsibility. Can I, enjoy, can I predict a painless, perfect transition after six generations of stupidity in our schooling? Unlikely I can make that prediction. But our choice is not between utopia and it, it's that choice. So that's the, that's the answer I would give. And thank you for the question. Edward yes. Harshman. He knows he's the last one. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Real louder. I've got a hearing impairment. Some people say I've got a brain impediment. Edward Harshman, Chattanooga, Tennessee. I would just like to add or suggest you add to your uh, excellent presentation that when there is government running the schools, the government can set the content and teach what they want to teach and not teach what they don't want to teach. They, they do not teach, for instance, uh, that uh, black, they do not teach that there was white slavery in this country a long time ago and that uh, black people used to be enslaved in Africa, so we didn't really hurt them that much by bringing them here. They want us white people to feel guilty and controlled. They teach us about global warming, which is a lot of hot air, as most of us know. <laughs> so we feel guilty about breathing. What do they want to do? Make us stop breathing? So if we could kind of spread the word about here is how they are scrambling politics, scrambling science, Julian Simon, Ultimate Resource uh, 2, and Facts Not Fear, and so forth, and say, this is, these are the facts. They are polluting your children's minds. Don't let them do that. We may have a better chance. If you want to add to that, go right ahead. Exactly. Oh. 
I would like to very quickly speak on content standards, national standards, uh, world-class standards, uh, state standards, and that sort of a thing of content. Child's got to know X to, go to get out of high school, that sort of a thing. Penn Fifner, good libertarian, uh, ran as Republican state uh, rep in, in Colorado, bragged to me a few years ago that uh, he'd gotten all of the fluffy stuff out of the um, uh, standards. It's uh, no longer the children going to need to appreciate the color red by the age 10. And some of these kinds of uh, fluffy things. And everything is a good, hard intellectual standard, you know, knowledge standard, cognitive. And I said, well, what you're telling me is that you have helped make sure that the state decides what is in the mind of the human beings and live in Colorado. You call that libertarian? How do we distinguish? I mean, this is what got me kicked out of uh, ASCD in speaking there. And as I said to the outcome-based education people, how do you distinguish in principle, if you can set outcomes of what is in a child's mind, how do you distinguish in principle between that and the brainwashing that was done by the North Koreans? What gives the state, supposedly the servant, the right to decide what is in the mind of the master? You've got to fight the state's standards. Now, what do you do? And we'll close this thing up and get out of here. Remove your children from the near occasion of undermining. They are undermining you in the government schools. If you believe in any absolutes, they are teaching those children relativism. By the way, many of the private schools, too, so be awfully careful. <laughs> Secondly, sign the proclamation. Now, I will read you your rights publicly right now. If you're planning a career in government service or pu uh, public school, government schooling, your signature on this career could be injurious to, in, on this proclamation could be injurious to said career. So Ron Paul almost lost his election because of his signature on this thing. So be courageous. He did not remove it. He stuck to it. And hooray for Ron. Sign this proclamation before you leave. Third, help somebody else remove their children. Fourth, teach others about self-separation. And five, join the alliance. Lend us your time, your treasure, your talent. Thank you very much for your kind attention. There are, I believe, a number of people here who believe in educational vouchers. If you do, if you think that that's a legitimate issue to explore the separation of school and state, as you can see, Marshall is a gentle soul. He's not intimidating. He's Mahatma Gandhi applied to marketing. By the way, when we're discussing separation of school and state, please remember we do not use words like end, abolish, or remove. Marshall, may I correct you? We replace government-run schools with voluntary alternatives. I stand corrected. <laughs> I can't resist. There's an old story about people standing in line in Soviet Russia for bread, as they always were. And this line is long, and there's no bread, and this guy's bitching and moaning. And behind him is a member of the KGB in disguise. And the KGB member finally takes pity on the man. He says, I want you to know I'm an undercover KGB. I could send you to the gulag, and I'm not going to do that. Because you do not realize how good you have it here in Soviet Russia. Do you realize your complaints about government bread here? Do you realize in America the government doesn't even sell bread? You remember that when you're talking about government-run public schools. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, changes, housekeeping items. Uh, number one is uh, the item that was showed from 4.10 to 5 o'clock. 
fear firearms and freedom. Unfortunately, Ms. Gushaw had a major business problem that requires her to stay uh, in Detroit and uh, uh, work on her contract with the Ford Motor Company. Their idea of a better idea is to take her out of our event, so I'm going to have to send a note to uh, the Ford family. Next time, they're supposed to let her free. Ms. Gushaw sends her apologies. She's sorry she can't be with us, but uh, she said uh, she hopes she'll understand. What we're doing is we're moving a panel that was set on Sunday to that. And the panel we're moving is the future of liberty. If you want to hear how good it's going to be, you got to be here. We're going to have David Nolan, Harry Brown, David Berglund, and Sharon Harris sharing their visions on why hope isn't nearly strong enough a word for what we may well see, not just in our lifetimes, but in the very near future for ourselves, our families, our friends, and our children. A free world, a free America. you got to see this. It's going to be fun. On Sunday, we have added something that you're going to love. A number of people in this room knew people like Ayn Rand, Dr. Murray Rothbard, Henry Hazlitt, Ludwig von Mises, and we're going to be sharing personal reminiscences. If you've never met some of these giants of liberty, you're in for a real treat. It's going to be a gourmet delight for the soul. you got to be there. And for those of you who go to church, go to early mass so that you don't miss out on this. I talked to God. He understands. He wants you here. Will you accept that as a friendly amendment, Mr. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For those of you who asked uh, about communicating libertarianism to your Christian uh, friends, whether they're Protestant or Catholic, or to your religious friends, may I recommend Virgil Swearington's Discovering Self-Government? Not for you. You can get it out at the table. Buy it for your Christian friends and say, I have friends who are Christian libertarians, and they say, you've got to take a look at this. It's a really excellent study guide. I highly recommend it. If they don't have a copy for you there, they'll get you one and make it available. But pick that up. The other item is available. I believe Jim Turney may have it. They had an ISIL conference down in uh, Costa Rica. There was a talk by Tom and Linda Rawls called Why Christians Should Be Libertarians. Jim, can you make those available to us so that we can help communicate with our Christian friends who need to understand that Jesus Christ and the lady in New York Harbor ought to be on the most personal and candid and friendly of terms? So we're going to make that available. Now, before our break, our break is going to end at uh, 11... Let's see if my time is right. We're going to give ourselves... I'm going to make it 11.15, because right now it's 10.52. Before we leave the room, may I let us know everybody here? My tongue... That's dyslexia again, isn't it? Let me try a real sentence. (laughs) What the speaker meant to say... Two items. Number one is about the lunch. There was a minor change in, in the lunch. Playing the part of Harry Brown at lunch today is Harry Brown. All right. A lot of you thought that we were bringing in someone else, but it's going to be Harry Brown. The other item is we're going to have a book signing of some of our libertarian authors as during the break. Mary Ruard is going to be autographing copies of her book, Healing Our World, or uh, uh, brief answers to tough questions. Doug Casey is going to be autographing his book, Crisis Investing, for you. And Jim Cox is going to be autographing his book on economics. If you don't have those, you're really in for a treat. While you're here, I, I, I don't know how to say this any nicer than this. 
Libertarians are, as a group, known for not playing well with other children. I want you to take just a few moments during your break and say hello to someone you haven't met. This is a room of some of the finest libertarians you will ever meet in your lifetime. Get a chance to swap business cards, get to know them. Someday you'll thank me for it, I think this afternoon. Let's take a 25-minute break and let's have some more fun. Well, we're, this is a good group. MC thing just so well. Thank you.